All right, so we're going to pray together, and we're going to use uh, Psalm 27. We're going to look at verses 1 to pray together. So here's the deal. Sometimes you read the Bible, and you're often wondering, okay, so what's the practical application, right? And then the Bible really doesn't have a lot of practical applications in it, so we love to make them up, and so that's what the church does. We make up tons of practical applications. But, however, this is interesting, in verse 1, there actually are two applications. Are you ready? Here it is. The Lord is the light of my salvation. Application. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Do you know what that means? We're going to look at a text today where these strong men have to go through the, the valley of giants to get to the garden. But now, because you're a Christian, any enemies have to go through Jesus to get to you. He's your stronghold. He's your shield. He's your fortress. And the practical application is the same thing, just saying it again in case we missed it. Whom shall I be afraid? So I guess fear is a real thing something that we need some sort of practical application to deal with. And according to this text, the Lord is your light, your salvation. That's how you deal with your fear. He's your stronghold. That's how you deal with your fear. So let's pray to that end, shall we? Uh, Lord, we thank you that this is true. Uh, We know, we know that the first emotion documented in the garden is fear. Once sin entered the world, the first emotion was fear, anxiety, and then shame coupled with that. And so, Lord, we are a fearful, anxious people uh, for many reasons. Some reasons like we need to be. Other reasons, your word says, we run when no one's actually pursuing us. So, Lord, would you right now Show us, make even more clear to our minds, real to our hearts. All of us here, we're going to ask for it to be our light and our salvation, our stronghold. Whom shall we fear? And then, Lord, we're going to pray this for our loved ones, our family, our friends, our spouses, our children, our parents our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, uh, our church, our neighbors, uh, those that we're making friends and having gospel conversations with, or those that there is a relationship with, that we know enough about someone's life to know that they need this too. We pray for them right now. And Lord, we pray for your church because your church needs to know that the answer to fear in them and fear outside of them that comes at them from the culture, the fear that's driving everything that's going on in the culture right now, fear is what drives the world right now. Fear is the primary motivation of everyone's life unless light and salvation comes. 
And so, Lord, that's what we're asking. We're asking that the church, we're praying specifically for Waco, that the church, like, has this rediscovery, this recovery, this reformation, reviving kind of awakening that you're the light and you're the salvation for everyone, not just the skeptic, not just the unreached person, not just the unbelieving person that lives next door to us, but Lord, your people, this is the answer for us. So Lord, would you cause a recovery of you as the light, as the salvation, a comprehensive salvation that covers A through Z of everything that has to do with the kingdom of God, which includes sanctification and life change, which includes practical application, that you're it, you're the engine, you're the author, you're the cause. You give faith, you give repentance, you give new thinkings, you give a new spirit, a new life. You do this. It's what you do. And then we, your church, would actually like rest, rely, rejoice, and be incredibly energized by that in all areas of our life. We pray this for your church. We pray this for Redeemer. We pray this this summer that you would deepen us in it. We pray this for the sake of Waco, for all the fearful people out there. Pray this for the sake of the world, like for China, where the Martins are and have been, for all the fearful people over there. We pray for our connections that are happening in Peru and in the jungles of those areas of, of tribes and people that are not hearing the gospel, for all the fearful people there. Lord, we pray this, that you would be the light and the salvation for the world, because you are. Thank you that you allow us to participate in that. Thank you that we play a small role in this happening here in Waco, and even when we pray all over the world. And we pray this in your name, and God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, y'all, so we are down to two sermons in the life of David. We've covered a lot this year. We've covered Proverbs, Isaiah, and the life of David this uh, spring. So um, I'm not sure what we're going to do in the fall, but as we get to the end, I take a break, right? And so when I take a break, I breathe the fresh air of, uh, well, really, just space in my head and in my heart. And when that happens, God usually has some reading that I do, and what usually happens is it's impressed through conversations with y'all, my family. It becomes real clear what we do in the, in the fall. Um, so you can pray for that time as it happens. Um, one of our dear friends here has gifted us with a, uh, their, their place at the beach. And so we're excited about going to the beach because I absolutely love the beach. Yes, I am a beach person. So we have mountain people and we have beach people in our family. I think Nancy and I are the only beach people in our family. Isn't that right? It was a cruel curse of God that that happened, but it's happened. But that's what we're going to do. So today uh, we're in those last four chapters of the life of David that everyone's all confused about. That's what we're going to do. So here's how we're going to begin. Sarah Condon, some of you may know her. She is actually now running an advice column in a journal called The Mockingbird. And her code name in this advice column, you know, like dear, her code name is Gracie. So dear Gracie, she feels a question on parenting from someone who signed it, Gritty. So Gracie to Gritty, got it? 
goes like this. Dear Gracie, in my house we grew up in a rub some dirt on it mentality towards injuries and illnesses. <laughs> or the monkey blood. Did y'all have the monkey blood? We had the monkey blood. Y'all even know what that is? Yeah, some of you. Yeah. You've missed out if your parents never put monkey blood on your burning injuries. My mom loved to say, if you're going to die, die quietly. I won't tell you what my dad used to say. It can't be quoted up here. While I appreciate the grit this parenting style gave me, it also made me a bit gruff and rough around the edges. Do you think? <laughs> there was little tenderness or grace in these moments. Emotion wasn't often shown in my house. So as a new parent, how can I help my child develop moxie but also feel deeply loved and cared for when they get a boo-boo? What a great question, right? Dear Gritty, all parenting is a reaction to the way we ourselves were parented. All of it. It sounds like the grit you received was hard-earned, and I'm not sure you really needed that lesson. The world, this is what got me. This is what's so good. More than anything else is this next paragraph. I'm using the third paragraph for the kind of the big idea of what we're doing, but this really got me. The world destroys us all. We suffer catastrophe, death, and the brutality of the human condition on a cycle that only ends when we go home to Jesus. And that death is rarely quiet, despite your mother's suggestions. This is what she said. So I would say this. You are going to die. And your kid is going to die. Leave the grit for the grind of the world to take care of. Home should be the one place where we can always receive a warm hug and an unnecessary Band-Aid. Parents should be the people who offer a listening ear and consolation. Grace and tenderness are never wasted. Signed, Gracie. Grace is never wasted. A grandson of the most famous evangelist who has ever lived in the past 100 years says it this way. Grace can never be overplayed. Do you know how many times I hear that you are overplaying grace? Grace is never wasted. Some of us are thinking, yeah, but what does that even mean? <laughs> what does that even mean? That's like smoke. I try to grab it and I can't. I need something to hold on to, Jeff. I need something practical. I need something to do. Sometimes things just need to get done. Grace is never wasted. Some of us are thinking, yeah, but grace can be abused, Jeff. What about the repentance part? What about stop sinning? Make better choices. Fix your relationships. Stop it. What about the faith part? Trust God, love God, obey God, worship God. Return to God. Grace is never wasted. Yeah, but what about tough love? 
We need grit. We need guts. We need warning. We need correction. We need rebuke. We need endurance. Grace is never wasted. And all of us are thinking the same thing in this room. Prove it. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the reading plan. The first part of the reading plan is we're going to sit and we're going to read it together with yours truly giving a running commentary. Then at an appropriate time, when I have you stand and we'll read it at that time, okay? So let's put verse 1 up. You ready? This is the running commentary part. This is the part that I most look forward to. I know you don't, but I love the geeking out part of the text. Now, these are the last words of David. FYI, these are not David's last literal words. These are his last official words. His last literal words will happen in 1 Kings when he's on his deathbed. I don't think we're going to look at them. I've been debating whether I should, but I thought maybe I should just tell you Briefly, one of the things that's on top of mind, I hate that saying, while he's dying, guess what he's thinking about? He's turning to his son, who's going to be the king. Do you know what he says? Take care of Shimei. Well, those of us that sat in on the Shimei sermon, that's something. And if you didn't hear that or you need to know what that is, just go two or three chapters back from where we are today and see David's encounter with Shimei. That was pretty amazing. So these are his last official words as king on the earth. Got it? The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed. The anointed is more than a ritual anointing with oil to be king. This is a divine anointing with the Holy Spirit to be king. So when you get anointed as the king, as David was, the spirit of God rushes upon him, which it did. And then he defeats Goliath. The spirit of God is in him. It's with him. It's upon him. The Spirit of God has added a new nature to him. So he's not just one fallen nature and one person. He's now what's called a Christian, which is one person with two natures by addition. A nature he never fixed, a nature he doesn't change and make happen. It was a gift. Newness of life. And the Spirit came and gave it to him. And it's that new nature that has anything good that happens in his life, it comes from that. And everything bad that happens in David's life comes from his broken old self. The anointed of the God of Jacob. Well, why is David anointed the anointed one of the God of Jacob? Well, he was anointed, number one, by God's spirit to be the king. But sometimes we forget this. He was also anointed to be a prophet. A prophet? Yeah, that's why he says this. He calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit used him to write the Psalms, part of the Bible, the Word of God. Okay, David explains it further in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the Lord, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. 
For does not my house stand so with God? Now, David mentions his house 59 times since chapter 7. Why? Because in chapter 7, God forms this covenant with David saying, your kingship, your kingdom will last forever. You will have a continuing kingship. You will have sons and sons and sons that will reign. And ultimately, there will be this one son of David who will reign forever. For, David explains it here, he, God, has made an everlasting covenant. There it is. See that? What does that say? Uh, a temporary type, a temporary covenant in the land of Israel? Land, king, people? Everlasting covenant. Wait, let's get this straight. So, it's going to be more than just Israel. Everlasting covenant. For he will not, or well, an everlasting covenant, ordinate all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire. Verse 6, but worthless men are like all thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and with the shaft of a spear. And they are utterly consumed with fire. Now, in verses 8 through 12, which doesn't happen here, right? We go next to 13. 8 through 12, what happens is you get a list, a beginning list of David's disciples, of his kingdom. And it starts with three. They're called David's mighty men. They're his special forces. They're his most loyal friends. These are his most faithful followers. These are the ones that advance, they help David advance his kingdom. Remember, we've seen that. Remember the giants last week? David didn't fight them. His mighty men did. They're the ones that lay the very foundation of David's house. How interesting. Some of you that have had some reading or experience in the New Testament are starting to have like ding, 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 ding. Right? You should, because you're supposed to. That's how you're supposed to read the Bible. Then in verses 13 through 17, we see three of these disciples of David, these mighty men of David in action. Joshab, Eleazar, Shammah. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. And the three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of the Rephraim, the Rephraim, all right, literally the translation goes like this. So again, I'm not telling you who I think the giants are, because if I did, you'd be scared and you'd be distracted for the rest of the sermon. Literally, it says in the valley of the giants, in the valley of the Titans, in the valley of the Nephilim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was at the Bethlehem, David's hometown. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. Then the three mighty men, Joshua, Eleazar, Shammah, broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew out the water of the well at Bethlehem that was by the gate. This is just a mere 12.5 jog. And carried and brought it to David, another 12.5 jog. So this is a marathon that they run, carrying a 32-ounce hydro flask of Bethlehem's finest. But he would not drink it. 
He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men, Joshua, Eleazar, Shammah, did. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Shine on the page. Give and grant the realities of this passage. Make them as wonderful and powerful and clear to us as they are in in reality. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so grace is never wasted. Uh, Prove it. Prove it. So the last four chapters of David's life, chapters 21 through 24, are surprising, right? Nobody knows what to do with them. Nobody. All the biblical elites and all the modern experts today do not know what to do with them. They can't figure out how they fit into the puzzle of David. They don't know why they're in the Bible. They don't know what they have to do with Samuel, the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Everybody throws out uh, their theories, everybody throws out their hypotheses, and then they defend it. That's what ends up happening. And then they say, but so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this, it could be this, it could be that. And then we're often running into the fun stuff of the biblical elite. Uh, last week I said I'm not going to pretend I know, I'm just going to point out the obvious, that it's surprising. These last four chapters are surprising. But I am going to do this, I am going to say to you, and I am going to point out to you that In chapter 23, David actually disagrees with all the experts. In chapter 3, chapter 23, David completes the puzzle of David. David reads David for you. David interprets David for you. Amazing. Look at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And what I'm about to tell you is how you read me. What I'm about to tell you is how you interpret me. What I'm about to tell you is how you read the Bible. So a couple of weeks ago I had a pastoral first. It's never happened to me before in my 20-something years of being a church planner, pastor, and then you add on the other 10 of being like a campus minister in the Northeast, around the world, never happened. Uh, a, neighborhood, a neighborhood friend asked me to do his father's funeral. That's not what has never happened. And I said, of course I'll do it. Uh, and he then asked, hey, my father's in the hospital. Can you go see him? Of course I'll go see him. And I went and did after church a couple Sundays ago, went up and saw him. So I walk into the hospital room, and immediately you walk into the hospital room, the bed's there, and his whole family is surrounding him, lining the walls. This, again, is not a pastoral first for me. As soon as I walk in, he looks at me, hey, Jeff! I'm meeting this man for the first time. Then he says, Jeff, it's time. It's time for me to go see Jesus. It's time, too, because I miss my wife. She went to see him 10 years ago, and I need to see her again. Now comes the pastoral first for me. Jeff, I want you to do something for me. I want you to read my last words. 
to my family, to my friends, and to whoever else wanders in at my funeral service. I want you to read my last words to them while I'm with Jesus. That has never happened to me before. I have never been asked by someone to read their words, their last words, at their own funeral. So the day comes. It's not what I expected. It's packed. Um, firemen, policemen, full military honors. It feels like the whole city of Waco is there. And for the next 25 minutes, I read his last words. This is what David is doing. This is what David wants you to know about his life, about everything that matters to him, about how you're supposed to read him, about how you're supposed to interpret him, everything you need to know about First and Second Samuel is right here. He's telling us, well, he says that in verse 2, right? But look what has, he's not the only one telling us that this is what it's about. Notice in verse 2 and 3, God is saying, this is what David's life is about. Look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His tongue is, his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of, his, of Israel has said, these are my last words, but they're not just my last words. They're, they're God's last words about me. Here's how you read me according to God. Here's how you interpret my life according to God. Here's what all of 1st and 2nd Samuel means according to God. This is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so in verse 2 and 3, God is saying, I'm about ready to tell you what the life of David means. I'm about ready to interpret the life of David for you. And I need to have a quick time out here. When I was even preparing this, I'm like, wait, wait, I can't keep going. There's a practical application here. <laughs> There's immediate help for us here, right? How does chapter 23, David's last words, the Bible, immediately help you and me right now? How? How does it? The answer is immediate help number one. It helps you read the Bible. It helps you and me read the Bible. How many times do you think I've heard as a campus minister in the Northeast, the elite schools of the world, overseas starting campus ministries in areas that have never had them after the coup with Gorbachev, then planting here and pastoring here. How many times do you think I've heard, but that's your interpretation of the Bible, Jeff? How many? Oh, take a guess. I'd be a rich man, that's all I can say. Or I've heard, but everyone has a different interpretation, Jeff. Or, but so-and-so says it means this, Jeff. Or, if the Bible is so clear, why is the church so unclear, Jeff? Or, who cares what it means, Jeff? No one really knows what it means, Jeff. It means whatever I say it means, Jeff. I had a Brown student tell me that. That was a wonderful conversation. So I have two quick responses for that. This is supposed to help us read the Bible, right? Two quick responses. 
You should wrestle with the meaning of the Bible. If you're like, oh, this is hard. I mean, Peter, when he was reading Paul, he says, yeah, Paul is hard. <laughs> you should wrestle with the meaning of the Bible. In fact, Paul even tells us so. You know what Paul says? He says, think hard over what I say. Think hard over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in what I say. Unbelievable. Two parts that are going on there. He's saying, use your mind. Think hard. Of course, use your mind. Work at it. Think at it. Read it. Look at the grammar. Find God in the grammar. Be a grammar geek. Get into it, right? But it also means that the Bible is not irrational. In other words, the Bible is supposed to be clear to your mind. Part of faith is the Bible actually becoming clear to your mind. So it means you're, the Bible's rational. It's not irrational. It's not like it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Number two, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, God shines on the page. God gives you clarity to your mind and he makes it real to your heart. He opens your eyes. In other words, it also means the Bible is supra-rational. It's rational meaning it's not irrational, but it's also super rational because there's not a problem with the scriptures. There's a problem with you and me. We're spiritually blind. And so when we come to the Bible, we don't see it right. Not because it's not there. It's because we're spiritually blind. And the Bible actually opens your eyes to see what's there. This leads to quick response number two. Go to the Bible to help you read it. Go to the Bible to help you read it. God doesn't work apart from his word. He works in, through, with, by his word. Okay. Immediate help number two. What is chapter 23, the last words of David, supposed to immediately help you? I just need to strike while the iron's hot. Immediate help number two is this. It helps you read the Bible. Uh, Jeff, you just said that. Exactly. I'm just going to elaborate a little more. <laughs> So elaboration number one, the Bible doesn't care what you think it means. The Bible could care less about how you feel about it. The Bible doesn't care how you read it. The Bible doesn't care what you think about it. The Bible doesn't care, for example, what you think about David slaughtering all those Philistines who were in the promised land way before the Israelites ever got there. The Bible doesn't care. So the question you got to ask is, at elaboration number two, what does the Bible care about? The Bible cares about its own interpretation of the Bible. The Bible cares about how it reads the Bible. The Bible cares about how it interprets the Bible. The Bible cares about how it experiences the Bible. For example... The Apostle Paul writes in the Bible, Christ died. So this is what Jesus did. This is history. This is what we call a divine event. This is what Jesus did. The God-man died. It happened. It's accomplished. It's done. You can look it up. But what does that mean? How are you supposed to interpret that? How are you supposed to experience it? Paul continues, Christ died for our sins. For our sins interprets what Jesus' death meant. For our sins is how you're supposed to read Jesus' death. 
for our sins is how you're supposed to experience Jesus' death. So, if I say Christ died for nothing, he's just another mentally ill person or another religious fanatic that's out there. Or if I say Christ died to be a role model, to be a good example for good Christian living. Or if I said, well, Christ died because of institutional oppression. He died to give you a theology of liberation. An ideology of social justice. The Bible says to me, Jeff, I don't care what you think it means. Because the Bible in a very, because grace is never wasted, will talk to me in a very tender and gracious way and say, you know what, Jeff? When you read the Bible, you misinterpret it every time. So I have to tell you what it means. So I'm going to give you the truth, God says in the Bible. I'm going to tell you what it means. This is one of my favorite, I keep going back to it, so apologize, but I, I just keep, when I, when I was writing a book, I kept thinking of Pharaoh. <laughs> I'm like, you know, a divine event happens, the sea parts. A divine event happens where water's piled up and there's a path through the sea. A divine event happens and the Israelites go through it. And the divine event happens and Pharaoh interprets it this way, I'm going to go in there too. And we all know that Pharaoh misinterpreted the waters, right? What's interesting, when you get in the book of John, there's crowds that are always following Jesus, always. And you're like, why does he keep talking about the crowds? The crowds, the crowds, the crowds, the crowds. And this is interesting. Every time Jesus does something, he turns, and the crowds misinterpret him. Never read him right. He does something, and they never get it right. Here's the point. The Bible tells you what the Bible means. It helps you. And what's happening in chapter 23, that's what David's doing for us. He's, he's saying, I'm going to tell you what my life means. So, what is it? Verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, here it comes. Here it is. You ready? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God... He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. The original Israelites, when they read this, they would absolutely know that this is not David. Now, scholars today mostly think it's David, right? But anyone who has an honest read of the Bible would have to say, and we've had an honest read, uh, this is not David. Most importantly, David knows this is not David. This isn't me. Um, my family was a mess. My marriage was a mess. I committed adultery. I murdered one of my closest disciples. In fact, y'all, at the end of the list of David's disciples, the last one that's mentioned, just in case we don't miss, just in case we try to misread David, Uriah the Hittite. David knew his kingship was true. Don't get me wrong. He knew it was true. He just knew his kingship wasn't exhausted. He knew his kingship had glimpses. It, had, it was like the light bright game. Every once in a while in this blackness of the world in his heart, there would be a, a light that would poke through. Every once in a while there would be, because the Spirit of God was upon him, good stuff that would happen. So don't get me wrong. David's, David's kingship was historically true, but his kingship 
was historically not exhaustive. His kingship was meant to point to an eternal kingship. His kingship was meant to point to the ideal king. His kingship was meant to point to the sun king. S-U-N. He dawns on them like the morning light. The sun king brings light into your darkness. The presupposition of light here dawning means that it's coming, it's rising in darkness. The sun king brings the morning to your darkness. How does he do this? Like, here's how, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Sunshine and rain go all the way back to Genesis 1. They talk about the the earth flourishing. They talk about the world being what it's supposed to be. They talk about trees being trees. It talks about animals being animals. Everyone's being who they're supposed to be. It talks about the first humans being humans. In other words, what this does is that the Sun King, actually, this text is saying, what the Sun King does is he makes all things new. He makes you new. Absolutely new. I make all things new, the Sun King says. Well, let's keep going. Look at verse 6 and 7. But worthless men are like thorns. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3, too. When sin came into the world, what happened to the fruitfulness of the earth, thorns came, thorns that can't be removed, that are thrown away for pay attention. They cannot be taken with the hand. You know what that means? He's saying, what David is saying, is that in this world right now, there are thorns that can't be removed, but you and I try to remove the thorns by our hand. We try to get the thorns out. We try to get the sin out. We try to get the evil out. We try and we try. And the Bible is a catalog of human beings that spend all of their human lives trying to get the thorns out, but they can't. You can't get the thorns out of your life. You can't get the thorns out of your relationships. You can't get the thorns out of the way you work. You can't get the thorns out of any area of your life. Verse 7, but the man, who? The sun king, who touches them. This king touches the thorns, and he's the only one who can. And notice what happens when he touches them. The moment he touches them, he goes to war against them. Spear, javelin, sword. And consumes them. The sun king removes the thorns and he's the only one who can. So what does the sun king mean? Here's what it means. Grace is never wasted. The sun king rises upon you. And his light shines upon you in your darkness. The sun king comes so intimately to you that he touches your thorns and goes to war against them and consumes them. This is the Sun King. Grace is never wasted. Proof number one, the Sun King. 
Most of us are thinking at this point, but Jeff, can you give me something specific, something concrete, a specific example of how grace is never wasted, how, cha- how grace changes my thinking, how it changes my feelings, how it changes my relationships, how it actually causes me to be energized to do things, to work, to get her done. Can you give me a specific example? So after the Sun King, we get some incredible stories of David's mighty men. Loyal friends, loving friends, bold, courageous, doing friends. And so the king longs for water from the well of Bethlehem. Oh, that someone would give me some water from the well to drink at the gate. Now, Bethlehem is David's hometown. But at this time, too, it's prophesied that it's the son of David's hometown to come. Bethlehem means house of bread. So when the founders of Bethlehem came there and named it, they said, this is the mini promised land. This is the mini garden. That's why they named it that way. And so three of his disciples hear David longing for water from the mini promised land, longing for water from his hometown, longing for the water of paradise. And they say, let's go get it. Let's go. And they run a marathon through the valley of the shadow of the giants and beat them, get it, and go back out and beat them again. Why did they do it? Why do they have such love? Why do they have such obedience? Why do they have such energy? Why do they have such demonstration of humanity? Why do they have such boldness and courage? Why do they have themselves who they're supposed to be? Verse 16, then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew the water out of Bethlehem that was by the gate, carried it, brought it to David, but he wouldn't drink it, so he poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men? What David is doing is he's equating the blood of the men with the water. Do you see how he's doing this? In other words, to get the water, they put their life on the line. So the blood, their life, is equated now to the water for him. Do you see that? Who went at risk of their lives, therefore he would not drink it. So why did they do it? Why did they do it? Why were they so loving? Why were they so loyal? Why were they such good friends? Why were they so engaged in the kingdom of David? Why were they doing things and so bold and courageous and brave? Why, why, why? Why? Because David loved them first. Because David loved them fiercely. You know that one of the closest apostles to Jesus said, we love because he loves us first. Do not miss that. If you have any love for God, the only reason why you do is because he loves you first. If you ever have an inkling of love for God, it's only because he loves you first. If you only have an inkling of faith, it's because he loves you first. If you only have an uh, a snapshot of bravery or courage in your life. It's because he loves you first. The ethic of the Bible 
that you change and you grow and you become who you are is only because he loves you first. Grace is never wasted. Proof number two, we love because he loves us first. All right, let's end. Older commentaries say this about the well event. I just need to throw this in because it was just so good. I don't know how it fits. I don't really care. David is expressing a deeper wish. This is what older, the ancients, the dead people say about this passage. It's better to read the dead people sometimes. Here's what they say. David is expressing a deeper wish, not just for the water from the well in Bethlehem, but for the water of life that would flow from the one born in Bethlehem as the son of David's house. And everybody... Modern people go, oh, no, that can't be that. (laughs) It's really quite fun. They say David wants the ultimate deliverance. In other words, he wants the ultimate deliverance of the garden, the well. He wants the ultimate deliverance from the thorns, the ultimate enemy of sin, the ultimate enemy of guilt, the ultimate enemy of death the ultimate enemy of the primal giant himself. He longs for that. They say David knows, quote, access to the garden doesn't come through the blood of David's mighty men, but only through the blood of David's son, an even mightier man. So he pours the water out and waits for the sun king. We have the sun king. He's already come. And he rises on you and scatters your darkness. And he comes personally, intimately, because he fiercely loves you and he's fiercely loyal to you more than you're ever gonna know. And he touches the thorns in your life And Christian, he continues to touch the thorns in your life and defeats them and removes them and pats you on the back and says, get back in the game. Grace is never wasted. Proof number one, the sun king. Proof number two, the reason why you do anything in the Christian life is because he loves you first. Amen. Amen.